All right. Thanks, choir. That was really good. Well, happy Father's Day. Um, I want to thank everyone for all the support that I've received with the passing of my dad. Um, so many people have sent cards and just different texts and different things, and, and so I appreciate that. I really do, and, and yeah. I uh, thought about not preaching today. Dean kind of encouraged me not to, and, and Ron was willing to go. He's always willing to go. He's always chomp- <laughs> he's, he's chomping at the bit. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I'm doing my dad's memorial service, and so I was getting ready for that, and I said, I'll just go ahead and preach. Um, I had a message kind of already worked out, and it's on wisdom and on the a father's responsibility to teach wisdom, and I thought, well, this will be a good way to honor my dad, at least for me, because my dad, uh, he tried to teach me wisdom. I'll leave it to you to decide how well he succeeded, but <laughs> he, he really tried, so... We live in a a culture, in a city, where there's more choices than ever before. And I know a lot of youth are going to think that I'm a dinosaur when I say that when I was growing up, we didn't have as many choices as we have today. And especially because I grew up in Indiana, and so just coming here to L.A., there's so many options, so many things to do, and then with, with technology, social media, whatnot... And, uh, and it's not always a choice between the good and the bad. Sometimes it's a choice between the good and the better. And we have to decide what is the best thing to do in this situation. And so to make good choices, we need wisdom. Man, we need wisdom. And wisdom is not the same as knowledge. Some knowledge is necessary for wisdom, but knowledge is not sufficient to make you wise. There's a lot of really smart people out there who are not very wise. You probably know some. They have a lot of knowledge in their head, but they just don't know how to apply it. Nor is wisdom simply about good intentions. You know, there's a lot of very well-meaning people out there. They're really warm-hearted, well-intended people, and yet they're not wise. They make some really foolish choices. Biblically, a definition of wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge to the practical decisions of everyday life. The ability to take what you know theoretically, so you need to know something, and to take that and then to apply it to the practical, everyday choices that you have to make. And some decisions we recognize as being really, really important. We don't have to, we don't have to debate whether they're important. You know, what people to make friends with. Especially as a parent, you look at your children and you know that their peer group is going to have such an influence on who they become growing up. So that's a big, that's a, we want to encourage them to be wise. We know, as parents at least, that that's a big decision, what friends to make and to hang out with. Uh, whether to pursue advanced education. Most of us here have uh, are, are aiming in that direction, but that's a big choice. What college to go to? Do you go to college? What kind of college? Uh, what career to pursue and what job to take? It has a big impact on your life. And the further down that road you go towards a certain career, the less choices, options that you have. Uh, how to spend your money. Whether, whether we're doing a good job or not, we know deep down that how we spend, how we use our credit cards, whether we're saving, how we're budgeting, that has a big effect on our life. What people to date and to marry. That's something that culturally we still, even though dating is more free-flowing than it used to be, we still recognize that marriage has a big impact on your life. And we know that making a wrong choice in these areas can have huge consequences. You can spend years trying to recover from a bad choice. And so we tend to emphasize the need for wisdom in these areas, but we often fail to recognize the impact of the numerous little choices that we make every day. Decisions like whether to talk about somebody when they're not in the room, how to spend your free time, 
what websites to look at, whether to fudge the truth or to be completely honest, whether to buy something impulsively or to wait, whether to respond with patience or with anger. These choices, these little choices, they seem so insignificant, but they are leading you somewhere and they are turning you into something. They are forming your character and every choice is hardening you into a certain kind of person that you may or may not want to be. And therefore, we need wisdom, not just to avoid making the big mistake, not just to keep our kids from ruining their lives, but to help ourselves and our children to become the right kind of people. People who will naturally make good choices when those big decisions come. So turn with me today to the book of wisdom, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. Proverbs is the, the Jewish book of wisdom in the scriptures. And the interesting thing about Proverbs is when you look at the education of, of Jews around Jesus' time, uh, the boys would learn the first five books of the Pentateuch. They would not just learn, they'd memorize them. First five books of the Old Testament. Uh, girls didn't receive as much education, but the one book that everybody learned, girls and boys, was Proverbs. That's a book that the entire family had to memorize and go through together. And it was the dad's responsibility to make sure that his family learned wisdom from Proverbs. And of course, the mom, you know, did a lot with that. And there's there's sayings of mothers in the book of Proverbs. But it was ultimately dad's responsibility. He he believed he was going to have to answer to God for whether he had taught his family wisdom. And so in that context, let's start to read chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teachings, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. So the first instruction here is to let love and faithfulness never leave you. And that sounds very abstract. It sounds like he's the dad is telling his family, be loving, be, be faithful in your relationships. And, and I think he is saying that, but I think he's saying more than that. I think he's telling his family to remember God's love and God's faithfulness. And the reason I think that is that the Hebrew word translated for love here, it's chesed. You can roll that H. I just like to say it, chesed. It means loving kindness based on an unconditional covenant that you've made with somebody. So a prime example for humans would be marriage. In marriage, you covenant to treat this person lovingly, with loving kindness, whether you feel like it or not. Whether you have ayah, ayah is, is uh, friendship love. Whether you feel emotionally connected to your spouse, you're going to treat them with unconditional chesed. Whether you feel doed for your spouse, that's, that's erotic love. So the next time you and your spouse are having kind of a, a romantic uh, meal, meal together, you can say, hey, babe, want a dode, you know? <laughs> Dean is like looking at me like, oh, okay, sorry, sorry, Dean. This is a little tangent there. I'm just teaching you a little Hebrew that can be helpful in your marriage. That way you kids don't have to know what you're saying. Like, hey, babe, I really feel like dode. Anyway, back to my points. So chesed is the word to describe that covenant it's, it's not just used for humans, it's used especially for God, mainly for God, actually. And when you look at the covenant that God made with his people in the Pentateuch and Levit- in, in Exodus and then in Deuteronomy, chesed is the word that's used for God's love for his 
people. God's unconditional covenant love. He chose them and made a covenant to love them unconditionally apart from anything that they had done. And then the Hebrew word that's translated faithfulness here is we'emet. Or if there's any modern Hebrew speakers, you could say ve'emet. It describes the covenant faithfulness of God. When God pledges to love somebody, He loves them forever. He can always be trusted. He never lies. He never goes back on His word. God is always faithful to keep His promise. And so when an Israelite reading these words in Proverbs would see that, they would immediately have been reminded of God's love. Yes, they would think, of course, I need to be loving. I need to be faithful. That's true. But more than that, they would say, this is how God is towards me because he has made a covenant with me. And so the father is saying, look, yes, you need to be loving, faithful, but a key to wisdom, a crucial key to wisdom is to be absolutely convinced of God's gracious, unconditional love and faithfulness towards you. And then to model that in your relationships with other people. To remember that you did not seek and find God. He sought and found you. You did not choose God. God chose you. And if you love and trust in Jesus, then God has made an unconditional covenant of love with you that he will always be faithful to keep. You are his child and he is your father forever. And that was driven home to me this week when I heard that my dad had passed. I felt all kinds of emotions and those of you who have been in that situation can probably identify. But one of the strange emotions that I felt was a feeling of insecurity And that really struck me as odd. I I haven't lived at home for a a long time. I'm a grown man, 35 years old. I should be pretty competent. But I realized that I always viewed my dad as a protector, as a provider. I believed that even if, if something terrible happened to me, even if it was my fault, if I blew up my own life, my dad would love me unconditionally and he would do whatever he could to help me. I always believed that deep down. And so to have my dad gone, it kind of created a void, like, you know, I know I have my mom, but she's more emotional. I just, I viewed my dad as that stable guy. Um, And then I felt like the Lord saying to me, that's how he wants me to view him. It's not bad that I viewed my dad in that way, but in a sense, that's a preparation. It's a way of helping me to see that that's how God wants me to view him, that he's taking care of me. He's my ultimate Father. He's on my side. He is for me unconditionally. And he's taking everything that happens to me, even the the stupid stuff that I do on my own, he's taking it and he's making it work for his glory and for my ultimate good because he's made a covenant with me. And if you really believe that about God and you know him in that way, it will give you poise. It will give you confidence regardless of your circumstances. You won't make choices based on fear worried about what people will think of you or how to protect yourself or f- feeling like you have to just look out for yourself because nobody else will, you'll know that God has your back. And that can free you to do what is wise and right from a, from a big perspective, not just what seems expedient or practical in the moment. Let's keep reading verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your hearts and lean not on your own understanding. The second key to wisdom is to truly trust in the Lord with all your heart. And I'm afraid that for some of you, when you hear this, there's two responses typically. Some of you will kind of glaze over. 
because you're just like, oh, I've heard that so many times, right? And just kind of eyes glaze over. Or others of you may become very sentimental. You may begin to feel those warm fuzzies inside and be like, oh, yeah, that sounds like a Facebook meme. And, and like with the little kitten and, you know, just trust God and, and he'll do everything for you. He'll work it out. Don't worry. But this verse is actually saying something much deeper than, and more difficult than that. It's very possible to believe in God and yet tr- not trust God in the way this verse is describing It's very possible, very common, in fact, to believe in God's existence and yet trust in other things for the real direction of your life, for your real sense of security and significance. So, for example, you believe that God exists, you believe that Jesus died and rose again for your sins, you go to church, small group, VBS, you know, softball, you read your Bible sometimes, pray before meals, all the things that good, loving, Nova people do, but what is the real functional center of your heart, of your life? What do you actually love the most and trust in for your happiness and your well-being? Where does your primary sense of security come from? What is your self-esteem rooted in? What do you treasure? Often we deceive ourselves about what is most important to us, but the way to find out is just to ask yourself, how how would I honestly feel if this thing or this person that I love was lost, was taken. If you lose someone you love or something that you love, it's natural to be really upset. I'm not saying you shouldn't be. But if you know deep down that you would be devastated in such a way that your identity would be shattered, your sense of meaning in life would be lost, your sense of security would be gone, then that thing or that person is the functional center of your heart. That is your treasure. That is what gives you meaning in life and what brings you happiness and security. And therefore, that is what you worship, regardless of how much you like Jesus and enjoy coming to church. If your trust in God is simply the belief that He would never let anything happen to your treasures, then you're going to be disappointed. But if you trust God because He has opened your eyes to His glory and His goodness, then you will treasure Him. And you will believe that He always knows what is good and does what is best. Again, for for His glory and for our ultimate good. And so instead of relying on your own understanding, you do the third key to wisdom, which is found in verse 6. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And he will make your paths straight. And everything you do, acknowledge God. Acknowledge, in the Hebrew, it means to know something, but it also means to pay attention to it. You can know people, you can know facts, and yet choose to not pay attention. Choose to ignore those things. So knowing God, paying to, uh, acknowledging God is knowing him, but then paying attention to him. And there's a simple way to do this, and there's a more complex way. The simple way is just to pay attention to what God has told you in His Word, in Scripture. The simple do's and don'ts of Scripture that we, in our society, we feel like it's pretty legalistic to try to obey what God tells us to do. But it's helpful because God's instructions give us answers to numerous decisions without us having to try to figure out the right choice. So, for example, let's say that you're married. And things aren't going very well between you and your spouse. And you have an opportunity to have an affair. An actual offer is on the table from someone. And you're wrestling with whether this is a good idea and how things might turn out. The Bible can really help you with this choice. 
It gives you a very clear answer. No, never. (laughs) You're married, which means you made a promise before God to enter a lifelong covenant of faithfulness and love with this person. You don't have to think about it and pray about it. You don't have to ask your best friend. You don't have to go to a Christian counselor. You don't have to go on a discussion forum on Reddit. God, who, who knows everything, knows what is truly good for his creatures, and he knows that adultery is never the right thing. It's never good. It never pleases him. It's never the path to lasting joy. And he's clearly told you so in his word. The trouble is that we don't always like what the Bible says. So here you are in your troubled marriage and the prospect of staying faithful to your spouse doesn't seem very appealing, doesn't seem like the path to happiness. What are you supposed to do? Lean not on your own understanding. Instead, trust in the Lord with all your hearts so that you pay attention to him and follow his instructions. And if you do that, he will make your path straight through all the obstacles and through all the temptations of life towards true and lasting joy. So that is the simple way to acknowledge God in all your ways. But there's a more complex way, and that is, that is putting your life, putting your story, viewing your story within the, the bigger picture of God's story. A couple weeks ago, Dean uh, or actually a couple months ago, Dean used an illustration from a book called a- After Virtue by a guy named Alistair McIntyre. And I thought it was really good, and I think it applies to, to my message today. He says, imagine if you're standing at a bus stop, and a random stranger comes up to you, a guy that you've never seen before, and he says, the Latin name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. And then he walks away. How do you make sense out of that? Well, to to even make any sense, you've got to try to put it within a context, within a storyline. And so McIntyre says there's three possible storylines you could put it in here. Maybe more, but he gives three. He says the first one is a very common and very sad story in which this person is mentally ill. And so, you know, they come up to you and they say it, and they're, they're, they're off their rocker, unfortunately. The second story is a case of, of um, they, they've... they've viewed you, they, they, they haven't recognized you, they think that you're somebody else. Uh, and so that they, they come up to you, and maybe two, two days before, they had a conversation with somebody at the bus stop who looks very similar to you. Um, they have curly blonde hair, I, I don't know, they look just like you. you. You remind me of my son, Josiah, this is kind of that blonde hair, it's awesome, I like it. So maybe they're talking with, talking with Josiah and then sees Benton two days later. I don't know, but you look similar to that person. And so they're both discussing the, the Latin names of wild animals. They're both nerds. And, and uh, they can't remember the Latin name of the, of the wild duck. And, and they don't have smartphones. And so the one guy goes back home. He researches it, finds out the, finds out the Latin name, comes back two days later. And there you are, and he thinks that you're that person. And so he's telling you, hey, hey. The, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. Or, McIntyre says there's a third option, maybe this man is a spy. And he's given you the secret code to see if you're his contact. And so McIntyre's point is that how you view this, this experience, what story you put it into, determines your response to it. So if you think the guy's crazy, you're going to probably move away from him. If you think that he's uh, misidentified you, you'll just say, hey, I think you got the wrong person. If you think he's a spy, you might go call the police. 
So, like, it depends on how you understand this situation. Now, here is how this relates to God. Think of your money, all of it, all the money you have, savings, uh, investments, whatever. Think of how you spend it. Think of its purpose to you. How do you view your money? What does it represent to you? Security, safety, fun. It really depends on the story that you think you're living in. If you accept the secular story of the world, you'll think that we're all here by accident, and that when you die, you cease to exist, and that someday the sun will burn up the earth, and then the sun will burn out, and eventually the whole universe will die a cold death, and therefore nothing you do will last or be remembered or have any meaning at all. That's going to have a big impact on how you view and spend your money. You'll believe that the only happiness you can possibly have is during this earthly life. And therefore, you'll view your money as serving your own earthly pleasure. And you'll spend it primarily for that purpose. But, what if the story of the world is very different? What if we were created by God and everything we have is a gift from Him? All your money is a gift from God. What if this life is not all there is? What if it is only a very small part of our existence? And what if the pathway to finding true happiness, both in this life and in the next, is by loving God and then loving people? In that context, the purpose of your money looks very different. It's not simply enough to follow the the simple do's and don'ts of Scripture in order to acknowledge God, because the Bible doesn't give instructions on every decision you have to make. Instead, we need to grow in our understanding of God's story from Scripture to really see His story and then to see our life within that story. Every decision that you make within the context of God's story. Because His story then will inform your choices. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. We just talked about how understanding God's story will affect our spending, but what I want to focus on here is verse 7, where it says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. The definition of a fool in Proverbs is twofold. It's somebody who says in his heart, There is no God. Not necessarily with his lips. But in his heart, he says, there's no God. And it's somebody who's wise in his own eyes. Somebody who thinks he has everything figured out. He thinks he knows everything. He thinks he's always right. He doesn't need advice. He's more than happy to share his opinions, but he doesn't want to listen to the opinions of others. And in our society, we have taken that image of a fool, and in some ways, we've held it up as an ideal. We're an individualistic society. We're taught to make our decisions by being authentic to what we feel and what we want rather than finding out what other people think we should do. After all, it's my life. I should decide how to run it. But the problem is I can't see myself or my circumstances clearly. And when I look in a mirror, I only see reflections, certain angles, when I look down, I only see part of my body. It's, it's not, and then in my mind, it, when I think about myself, we all have a mental image of ourselves. That image is distorted by my desires, by my memories, by my wounds, my emotional wounds, and by wrong perceptions of reality that I have. It's not a perfect representation of me. 
And that's why I dread seeing myself in video. I dread it uh, because it never matches how I view myself. A couple months ago, uh, Loki decided to, to shoot a video of me preaching up here. And then he gave it to me. And that was very kind of him uh, because a pastor can learn how to be a better communicator. Uh, but boy, I hate watching that stuff. And to be honest, Loki, I never watched it. <laughs> because the guy on the video is always less attractive and weirder than I am. It's really weird. His voice sounds higher than mine sounds. His stomach is bigger, but his arms are smaller. His jokes are less funny. And yet people are always in agreement. Oh, yeah, that's you. Yep, that's you. See, in Proverbs, wisdom comes from seeing things through God's eyes and from the eyes of others, from getting the widest, most accurate view of a situation so that you know how to respond. And so Proverbs emphasizes, stu- emphasizes studying the Word of God so that you know God's perspective, but it also emphasizes having many wise and godly counselors in your life, wise people who can add their perspective to yours. And by, his havi- by having as many eyes, wise eyes, not just any eyes because you can have foolish eyes, but having as many wise, godly eyes on a problem, on a situation as possible, you can see clearly what needs to be done. And that's another reason why being in a small group is so important. We talk about it week in and week out. You, can be, you, you cannot be wise without being grounded in the Word of God and in godly community. With people, godly people, wise people that you've chosen to open yourself up to and to be honest and to say, this is who I am, give me feedback to see things from other perspectives. Finally, verse 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Do not despise God's discipline. In other words, you can do everything right, you can make all the right choices, you can be a child of God and yet still have terrible, painful things happen to you. And if you don't believe that, you're not ready for life. You're still foolish. Nobody ever gets wise without having bad things happen to them. We live in a society that emphasizes instant gratification and sees very, sees very little value in suffering. But most cultures throughout human history have understood that a person cannot be wise without suffering. A person who's lived a charmed life of success and comfort may be very friendly but she'll also be naive and superficial. She will have no deep understanding of human life or deep empathy for other people. Virtually everyone who is wise says that they learned the most through failure and suffering. Do you really want to know yourself? To know not just your strengths, but your weaknesses so that you can grow? Do you want to know what your heart is really like so that you can have assurance that your faith in Jesus is genuine. It's revealed when you're tested. Do you want to be wise and compassionate at helping hurting people? It only happens if you've been through pain yourself. Do you want to have such a deep confidence in God and such a close relationship with Him that nothing rattles you, nothing shakes you? To get there, you'll have to go through fire with God so that you can watch Him bring you out safely on the other side. You won't know experientially, that Jesus is all you need until Jesus really is all that you have. 
You won't be fully motivated to cling to God until you're drowning. And that's why God disciplines those He loves to produce in them the strengths and the attributes that would never develop in ease and comfort. That's the way a good father trains his child to make, sometimes he has to be tough on him to make him wise and strong and mature. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it teaches us wisdom. Lord, may we be people, would you cause us to be people who are, who are more um, open with each other, Lord, especially in gr- small groups where we can be honest. Would you give us wisdom, uh, even through suffering, Lord? May we trust you. May, may we rely on your unconditional love. May we see our stories within the context of your story. And may we respond to your discipline with faith and trust. We thank you for fathers, Lord. We pray, Lord, for for more grace on the fathers of this church that they would be able to raise up the children in their homes uh, with wisdom. And Lord, I pray also for those who are not biological fathers but who have a fathering role in the life of a child, whether they're a mentor as an uncle, whether they're a Nova Kids teacher or a teacher at school. Lord, would you give them grace to teach wisdom to those who are following their leadership. We thank you again for your deep love for us as our Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.